reported to him was squandering his property. He summoned him and said, What is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship, because you can no longer be my steward. Steward said to himself, What shall I do? Now that my master is taking the position of steward away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they may welcome me into their homes. He called in his master's debtors one by one. To the first he said, How much do you owe my master? He replied, one hundred measures of olive oil. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Sit down and quickly write one for fifty. Then to another the steward said, And you, how much do you owe? He replied, One hundred cores of wheat. The steward said to him, Here is your promissory note. Write one for eighty. And the master commended that dishonest steward for acting prudently. For the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves with dishonest wealth, so that when it fails, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The person who is trustworthy in very small matters is also trustworthy in great ones. And the person who is dishonest in very small matters is also dishonest in greatness. If therefore you are not trustworthy with dishonest wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? If you are not trustworthy with what belongs to another, who will give you what is yours? No servant can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and man. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I get nervous every time I hear this parable because I have an allergy to creative accounting, especially in churches. Those of you that have been around for a while know all about that. Sister did sort of upend my homily a little bit, but that's all right. I'll get her back. So this week I had the terrific privilege of being able to witness the perpetual profession of vows for sister visitation and her classmates out in D.C. I'll be honest, I was very happy to go for sister. I was a little nervous. Uh, and the reason I was nervous is because those of you that have been around for some time know, I spent my first years as a priest, all of my time in formation, as a religious. The world that she is in is very much like one I was once a part of. But I am a failed religious. I flunked out of the monastery. And, uh, and that's how I wound up here. I was nervous about going back in the same way that I suppose the first time you have to go to somebody else's wedding after you've gotten divorced is kind of hard. And I'd managed to put it off for five years. I was struck by many things, by the devotion and fidelity of the sisters, by their evident care for each other, 
by how much fun they managed to have. But the thing, the thing that struck me and the thing that really convicted me, and to be honest, it cuts kind of deep, was their joy. See, religious life lived authentically brings something to the church that otherwise just doesn't exist. Religious life is the one sort of institutional thing in the church that is, in a certain sense, not strictly necessary, right? If the priesthood died out tomorrow, we'd have a huge problem. There'd be no sacraments. But religious life, in a certain sense, isn't necessary. Nor is ice cream. They're both beautiful. Life is much better for it than without it. And when we lack the presence of consecrated religious, especially visible consecrated religious in our midst, uh, the church misses out on something. It was though I'd been fasting for years, so long I'd forgotten I was hungry. Their joy is infectious, contagious, and I still have a little bit of a glow left on me just from having been in their presence. I'm not buttering her up. I mean this. You all talk to her after Mass. You'll see what I'm saying. This is a real thing. And the reason it convicted me, the reason it made me feel bad about myself was because I am not nearly as joyful as I ought to be. It confronted me with a truth, an uncomfortable truth. I don't think that I'm sour all the time. But see, there's a difference and an important one between joy and happiness. Happiness is passing, it's fluid, and it's dependent largely on what happens outside of us. We sing happy birthday and not happy Tuesday for a reason. The happiness is attached to the, to the feast, to the, to the festival, the holiday that's being kept. We say Merry Christmas and not Merry December or something for the same sort of reason. But, 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 but joy is something much deeper, much more profound. The martyrs are said to sing with joy on their way to execution, because they're happy? Does anybody look forward to getting cut into little bits? No, of course not. But because they've come to delight in the presence of God and the perfection of his will, the working out of his will in us, even in the midst of the worst of circumstances. They say that when the fathers of Nicaea, the bishops who wrote the Nicene Creed, that when they gathered for the council, this is after 300 years of persecution. They, 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 they processed into the church. Many of them had to be carried. Those that didn't were stooped and crippled and couldn't work right. Many were blinded or missing limbs or eyes because of torture during the persecution. They were like a rogues gallery. Not stately bishops and fine vestments the way we see today, but broken men full of joy for what they had been privileged to suffer for the Lord. I raise this question of joy today, of all days, not only because sister was here, because again, I wasn't banking on her being here, but because I think joy is at the root of what the Lord is actually talking about in today's gospel. This is not a parable about wheat and oil. And here's how we know. The measurements that Jesus is using here um, look like something different to us than they actually are. The, the measurements Jesus is using here are wildly out of proportion. We hear a measure of flour, and we think like a measurement in the kitchen or something. This is like bushels and bushels and bushels of flour. 
bushels and bushels and bushels of corn, bushels and bushels and bushels of wheat. And the measures of olive oil, similarly, right? There, th- this is not a bottle of olive oil that you can pick up at all these. No, it, this is like semi-loads and semi-loads and semi-loads of oil. And the reason that matters, then, is because when the Lord Jesus, when he does uh, propose this scenario, he's exaggerating the degree of the people's debt all out of proportion. Here's the easier way to say it. This guy is in debt more than he could ever pay off. And the guy's in debt to him, the one whom he's writing these fake uh, insurance notes for, uh, interest notes for, right? They're also in debt up to their eyeballs. Nobody can ever pay all this off. Sound familiar? A debt so big, you can't ever pay it off. And a whole bunch of other people with debt so big, they can't ever pay them off. If it doesn't, you've not been listening. Of course, this, this parallels what he's been saying the last several weeks, right? So he, so he tells right, the parable of the lost coin. What woman, having lost her coin, wouldn't tear apart the house all day and then finding the coin invite everybody over for a party? And the answer to that, right, is no woman. No woman in her right mind would do that because the coin's a day's wage. So she's wasted the whole day not working and has only found the one coin. She can't afford to spend that one coin on the party. She needs it for the day she didn't work. What one of you, having 100 sheep, wouldn't leave the 99? Come on. Who would risk 99% of their investment for the 1% that you know you can't get back? What one of you, having a kid who finally deserving some tough love is cut off and goes elsewhere and, and messes everything up and he comes back, and wouldn't you throw him a big old party? Happy that he was drunk and drugged out and whored out until he couldn't come back? Isn't that what you do? No, nobody would do any of these things. Nobody would do any of these things. Except his father. Except the father of the Lord Jesus. He's the one who runs out to meet the prodigal. He's the one who tears apart the house looking for the lost coin. He's the one. He's the one, ultimately proud of those who settle their debts even if they're a little shady in how they do them. He's not commending the unjust steward for being unjust. He's commending the shrewd steward for recognizing his lot, that he is in an infinite degree of debt as are all of his fellows. And so, making things right with these other debtors is the only chance he's got to survive. Joy, they say, is the infallible sign of grace at work in the soul. Not happiness, not cheerfulness, not friendliness. They can be good things. I'm not again them. But joy, that deep-seated disposition to delight in the good as it happens to us. What happens when we're able to get lost holding a baby, both when they're cute and also when they're crying? The reason we embrace our spouse before bed, even when we're still madder in hell at him. What causes us to go pick up our kids from the party when they've been smart enough to call because they got drunk, even though they snuck out and got drunk? It's that disposition that endures and that makes us grow more and more like God. 
That's what Jesus is talking about here. Be shrewd with your money. Most of us are. I'm at least relatively shrewd with yours. Don't tell the bishop. But be shrewder still with the grace that's been given you. And make no mistake, everyone here, every single one of you, has more grace already than you know what to do with. And most of the time, we pass it right by. From the moment the water touched your head, there was enough grace in your soul to save not just you, but the whole world. How many of us know the date of our baptism? Most of us have been confirmed, given the grace of the Holy Spirit. Our natural gifts have been perfected, much like a musician who has a natural disposition to music, but engraced by the sacrament, now that becomes a charism, a gift for the church. Many of us are married. There's a grace there, too, a particular grace that comes with the sacrament, not only to prevent you from, like, sleeping with other people, I mean, congratulations if you fulfill the most basic obligation of that relationship. I suppose you get a gold star. But, 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 but the grace is meant to do so much more than that. Those of us that are ordained have a particular grace in the sacrament of orders that is deliberately not for us, but is for you, which is why sometimes I manage to be effective in spite of all evidence to the contrary, sometimes in spite of my own disposition. Even just the presence of a friend, having one friend in life, creates a grace of office. But do you delight in your friends the way you're supposed to? The reception after sister's uh, profession was lovely. It was very simple. Simple food, simple drink. At one point, we even ran out of ice for the pop. Nobody minded at all. Joy. Joy. A permanent, consistent disposition, a stable disposition, a state of soul, a default setting that lets you take what comes and see God in it, come what may. Be shrewd, friends, with your money, but shrewder still with your grace. And don't let anyone, anyone, anything ever steal your joy.